words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Last week uh, I wasn't here uh, and I was, uh, we were at Mangatapu um, and I got the opportunity while I was there to read the pew sheet for another church, from another church, which was an interesting experience, just seeing how they lay it out and how they do things. Um, and included in that pew sheet was a little piece like we have, I, uh, well, whoever's preaching usually writes a little piece about um, the theme for that Sunday. Uh, but the little piece in this pew sheet, rather than being about the theme from the scripture passages for that Sunday, uh, were about Christian ethics. And uh, started with the recent general synod discussions around the blessing of same-sex marriages. Um, and uh, kind of went on from there to say, it is, however, not, it is not, however, the only ethical issue that we need to address as Christians. And then he went on, or uh, was it he, went on to discuss abortion, euthanasia and biotechnology. And I was somewhat surprised by that list, to be honest. I was surprised because in the media, over the weeks leading up to last Sunday, there'd been increasing attention to the issue of homelessness, uh, which uh, some of the government are trying to pretend doesn't exist and others are trying to pretend just exists in Auckland. Um, but in the week leading up to last Sunday, there had been increasing media attention given to the principal of Mirabar School, talking about the issue of homelessness and how that's affecting the children who attend her school and the number of families of children who attend that school who are caught up, who do not have the resources to afford housing in this area. And also during that week, uh, the government released its eighth budget, which some people applauded, but others, including our own Archbishop, was very critical of. And in your um, parish magazine, there's a copy of the article that was put on the Taonga website uh, about the Archbishop's statements regarding the budget. Archbishop Philip describes the budget as a fiscal and a moral document, and he says that this budget failed to address a number of moral issues, including the issues of homelessness, the issue of affordable, warm housing for all, not just those who can afford it, and the growing inequalities in New Zealand. He says more and more New Zealanders find themselves trapped in poverty because their families don't have adequate income to live minimal, minimally decent lives. And so my surprise about the list of Christian ethical issues was it didn't include either of those things. And I wondered whether we as Christians have anything to say to those issues. It would appear, from their point of view, not. And their argument would be, well, from a biblical point of view, uh, the Bible doesn't have much to say about those things, but it has a lot to say about the issues listed in that pew sheet. But I wonder if that's actually true. We are in the middle of the year where we read from the Gospel of Luke. And the author of Luke Acts presents to Theophilus, which means lover of God, an orderly account designed to explore and answer the question, who then is this Jesus? And out of that question comes the three questions that I keep harping on about. Whose are we? Who are we? And what is ours to do? Which is another way of saying, 
what difference does this Jesus make to our lives? Now, the writer of Luke-Acts didn't just write for his initial audience. He wrote, probably not knowingly, but he wrote for audiences down through the centuries to all who read or listen. And that includes us. And the purpose is the same. Who then is this Jesus? And what difference does he make to our lives and to this world? The writer of Luke-Acts gave us these works to help us navigate our lives and to address the issues just like those the Archbishop identifies. And today we were given the story of the widow whose son is restored to life. And it's a really interesting story. I love this picture of the kind of eye popping open that grabbed me kind of the essence of what it's about. Um, This story we read, I mean, again, we have this problem that we uh, read these Gospels in discrete little pieces, and the story is plucked out of the rest of the stories that go around it. But if we were to read the Gospel of Luke in one sitting, which is how it's supposed to be read, we would note this is a story, this story is the last of a series of stories and teachings that began with Jesus reading the scroll in his home synagogue, where he declared his mission to be to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And the following stories after that show him doing just that. And so this story we heard today is the last of that series of stories which lead, if we were to read another verse on, to John sending some disciples to Jesus to ask, Are you the one we have been waiting for? To which Jesus replies, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offence at me. The problem is that Jesus was not who John was looking for. He wasn't behaving in the way that the Messiah was supposed to behave. But what Luke is saying is that those actions of Jesus are the true signs of God's presence. So, which of these categories does this morning's story come under? Well, clearly, the dead are raised. It's one of those stories, and we usually stop at that point. But that would be a mistake. So, let's explore the story and see what it is about. Jesus is entering the town of Nain. It's a town that still exists, it's a little bit outside of the town of Nazareth, a small Arabic town. And he was entering with a reasonable crowd, a crowd of disciples and interested folk, people who were enjoying what he was saying and what he was doing and wanted to see and hear more. And at the gate of the town, his crowd collides with a funeral procession. 
So there's no orderly lines like we do in this country where people kind of move politely to one side and, and you can move nicely past each other. In the Middle East, those crowds would have just bumped into each other and kind of pushed and shoved and found their way through. It's the same there today. I remember the first time I was in the old city and uh, entered in one of the gates up the top and then was kind of just sucked into this mass of moving humanity, moving both ways on anywhere in that street and eventually popped out for a little break. And I remember standing on the edge of that main thoroughfare as I went... Okay, back into it, and kind of just launched back into that massive moving humanity and kind of was just moved along to where I was going to next. And that's what it would have been like. It would have been a collision of these two crowds. It would have been mayhem as people were pushing to get out and Jesus' disciples were pushing to get in. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus meets the mother of the man who has died. And somehow, Luke says, he understands the gravity of what is going on. It seems he knew that she was a widow, and this was her only son. And because of that, in a very real sense, this was her funeral as well. The life expectancy of a woman, apart from the very few wealthy women with no male to financially care for them, was very short. His death is her death. And Jesus has compassion on her. In fact, Bishop Helen Ann from the Bishop of Waikato uh, suggests, uh, she puts out a little piece every two weeks uh, because she is a New Testament scholar, and... um, what she was doing before she was elected bishop and uh, she puts out every two weeks a little piece for those who are preaching kind of just briefly giving some background information on the two gospel readings over the next two weeks and she suggests that the Greek word that is used here that we nicely translate as compassion is much stronger than that that it can equally be translated as anger Certainly it's a deep-seated emotion that comes from the bowels. It's not um, a kind of nice surface. Oh, I'm quite sorry to see that's happened, but it's a a kind of whole-body emotion. I wonder if, and so she suggests, that Jesus is showing anger at her despair. And I wonder if it is too strong to suggest that it is also anger at an economic system that dooms her because her son has died. An economic system that imperiled the poor on a daily basis. An economic system that bore no resemblance to the economic system laid out in the Mosaic Law and that paid so little attention to the words of the prophets, particularly the words of Isaiah, who Jesus so clearly uses as his starting point, particularly in Luke I wonder if his anger is at all of that which is brought together in this man's death. A man's death who will, that signifies, that becomes a metaphor 
for all that is wrong with the financial system of his time. And that out of compassion and anger, Jesus places his hand on the funeral bier and orders the young man to rise. Now, in the Greek, Jesus uses the passive imperative, which we don't really have in English, but Bonnie and I have come across it in Te Reo Māori because they have it. And a passive imperative is a command. And I was kind of thinking about this, and it was like, it's not like when I ask you to please stand here in church. That's not really a passive imperative. It's more like the command that the senior master would give us when I was a boy at Wellington College in Wellington. And you'd be sitting in assembly and you would be told to stand as the principal came in, the headmaster. And if you did not stand quickly enough, you were told to sit down and we would practice standing until we stood at the correct moment without stuffing around. This is passive imperative and that's what Jesus is using here. There's no room for, well, I'm not sure if I want to come back to life. It's just a straight out command. Rise, be alive. And the man sits up and begins to talk. And then Jesus does a really interesting thing that we miss because we don't belong to this economic system. But the Roman economic system relied on patronage, which meant that if I was a wealthy person, I could bestow favours on people less wealthy than I. And then they became my, well, I was their patron. And then I could ask them to do things for me whenever I liked. And they had no choice about whether they would do that for me because I was their patron. And the role of a wealthy person was to amass as many of these people as possible and then you could get things done for you. And if you were a poorer person, your survival was secured if you could get yourself a patron who would then provide what you needed, even though you were then at their beck and call. And when you do someone a great favour, like, for example, restoring them to life, well then your life becomes the patron's life. And so because this young man was now restored to life, in the patronage system, he is now at the beck and call of Jesus. Which isn't a lot of use for his mother, really, is it? If his mother relies on him to stay alive, but he's spending all his time looking after Jesus, well, that's of no use to her at all. There is some argument that, in fact, a lot of Paul's arguments and um, books like Romans and Galatians are actually against this patronage system and that he is trying to break it down and set up a new economic system within the Christian community and this patronage system keeps creeping on in there and he keeps going that is not the way of Christ and so in this story Jesus says I am not taking part in that system I am not your patron you do not owe me anything. I restore you to your mother. That is still your primary relationship. Our relationship is at an end in terms of patron and underling. Now we miss that because we're not part of that system. But those who would have been part of that system would have read that line and understood exactly what Jesus was doing there. 
So in this story, Jesus restores this young man to life. But much more importantly, and in fact the story focuses on the mother, not the young man. The young man is a kind of a... um, It's just a kind of mechanism in the story. The focus is on the mother. It's the mother who Jesus keeps looking at. Um, It's the relationship between Jesus and the mother. And so the really important thing here is the restoration of the man to the mother so that she is restored to life. The story is much more than just a dead man being raised. It really is a story of Jesus bringing good news to the poor, and particularly this poor widow who he meets in the gate. So what then does this story have to say to us? Well, for a start, might I suggest that the major ethical moral moral issues facing us as Christians are not the blessing of same-sex marriages, or abortion, or euthanasia, or biotech companies. They are issues that we need to address and talk about, but I would suggest that our major one, just as it was in Jesus' time, is the economic system. An economic system that causes homelessness, a lack of affordable good housing, and a growing inequality between the wealthiest and the poorest members of our society. And that this story asks us what ways do we participate and endorse and support this economic system? That's an important question for us as a church. We have two properties that we rent out, and one of them is leased at the market rental. And when we set it at that, we knew that there would be a whole lot of people who could not afford that anymore. When When I came here four and a half years, there were a lot more people who could afford our vicarage. But we have to also be responsible for the fact that um, that is one of our major sources of income. So there's this kind of competing dilemma for us. But on the other hand, we did not accept the, the property manager's recommendation for the St Francis shelter. We said, no, those people cannot afford that rent increase. We will leave the rent where it is, which is now well under market rental so that those people could afford to live there, and because who'd want to live there, really? And then there's the pay rates that we pay people. And an ongoing discussion for us as a church is, do we just accept the minimum pay rates that the the government says and that lots of employers stick to? Uh, Well, that's enough. Or do we say that's not enough? And do we go for the living wage, which is being calculated to be what people really do need to earn? And actually, if they were earning it, wouldn't need the tax credits that those on the minimum wage get if they have families. And we've decided as a parish that we are moving all our employees to that living wage level. But that costs money. So all of these issues about economics do have consequences. And at Synod, there have been parish who have said, no, we're not going to do that, the minimum wage is enough. But I would say, when you say that, then you are supporting an economic system 
that causes the kind of issues that we are seeing. And that today's Bible reading invites us to do more than that. It asks of us, what ways are we proclaiming good news? It asks of us, what moves us with compassion and anger? And what are we willing to do about it? So I invite you to just reflect on those questions. In what ways do we support and endorse our economic system? What moves us with compassion and anger? What ways are we proclaiming good news? And what are we willing to do about it?